0: May the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be always acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Please be seated. About a year or so ago, maybe a little longer, um, I had this epiphany that um, I needed a new type of cologne. Um, I think I perhaps had watched a show where the guy hadn't changed cologne since the 80s, and I thought, well, that's probably me too, and um, so I need to update, you know. And, and so I tell my wife this, and, and so she went on on a search for something, and um, I don't know, went to uh, Macy's or Dillard's or somewhere like that and discovered this uh, cologne called One Million by Paco Rabanne. Um, It's got this great woodsy kind of, you know, scent to it. Not too sweet. Certainly not Old Spice. You know, I thought, this is it. You know, this is great. She liked it. I liked it. Um, Most importantly, she liked it. That was, uh, it was a really good thing. But it wasn't cheap. Um, Like an ounce was like $100, you know. Um, And so uh, she bought it, and I didn't buy it. uh, You know, it could justify that. But um, it ran out. And here's the thing, while the cologne's not cheap, I am, like, very, you know. And so I thought to myself, I need more of this, but, um, you know, I'm not going to go drop a $100 bill on it. I'm going to do what you would do. I'm going to the Internet. This is the, uh, you know, this is the source right here. I'm thinking whatever you could buy at Macy's for $100, you could buy on the Internet for half that. And I was not disappointed. I found eBay the same bottle of cologne for forty-two dollars plus shipping. I'm like this is it, you know? And um, and it arrives and uh, and is a you know brand new in the box, sealed in plastic. And I looked at it and I thought to myself, Joe, imagine those chumps who are at Macy's right now paying hundred dollars for this. You're pretty smart and humble. You know these are virtues that you have, and uh, and so the next day I get up in the morning and I you know get myself ready and um and I open my brand new box and pull out this bottle and um and I spray it and something is not right. Yeah, it just doesn't it doesn't smell. Good at all. Um, it's um, it's really bad. And um, and I think to myself, well, maybe it's an old box, you know, it's from eBay, you know, and maybe it had been sitting around in a warehouse for a while and just needed shaken up or stirred. But then it occurred to me that this came from Bakersfield or San Juan or somewhere traveling via the United States Postal Service. And I'm guessing that Clyde, the mail carrier, did not put it on a pillow whilst he traveled around the world with it, you know, and I mean it it had to be shaken up pretty good by the time it arrived to me. There was not a problem with um with it being uh, you know, just old. I had been taken. I um I uh I went to the internet again, not only the source of all bargains, but also the font of all wisdom, and um and I looked up counterfeit colognes. You should do this sometime. It's interesting, the FBI has an entire division dedicated to counterfeit colognes. Who knew, right? Like the FBI, the Federal Bureau of Investigations in Washington, D.C., has an entire division given to chasing down cologne counterfeiters for good reason. Not only are they ripping people off of their trademark product, but they're making these things with the most horrible ingredients, antifreeze and other stuff. And so I'm freaking out, right? And I ran and I jumped in the shower. And, and from now on, I go to Macy's and I pay the $100, you know. It's important not to wear antifreeze on your body. Um, so I got to thinking about how counterfeiting kind of works. And here's the thing about a counterfeiter. You have to do so many things well. You've got to fake a lot of good stuff. You know, if somebody gives you a $100 bill and the picture in the center is Donald Duck, you know, right away, you know this is not authentic. This is not legit, right? But you get something like a box of cologne and it's a manufacturer's box, the one you've seen before, it's exactly the same. It's wrapped in cellophane, you open it up, it's the right bottle. You have all you assume that the product is true, that it's exact and yet it was a fake. The same thing works with currency. You know how it feels in your hand, paper currency. You know what it feels like, right? You know that, that it, maybe it's not real paper. Maybe it's cotton or something. It's, it, it's, it's got a rigidity to it. There's a grit to currency. Um, you sort of know the color. It doesn't feel like um, like a regular sheet of paper. It doesn't feel like the Wall Street Journal in your hands. It, there's something different to this paper. It's a, it's a different kind of paper. When something's valuable... It's important that you know that it's authentic. I saw a TV show not long ago where this, um, this young woman um, is on a train platform, and she sees another woman off to the distance, and she's amazed that it looks just like her. And then the woman jumps off the train platform, and, and she, um, she commits suicide. And so the first woman goes, and she gets her handbag, and she looks in, and she sees the, um, the, the ID, and it's an exact picture of her. And so she has her address and she goes, basically she's a clone. She finds kind of discovers along the way that she's part of this program uh, of cloning and and she assumes the other woman's identity. The other woman had a boyfriend, (laughs) you know. He didn't know that his girlfriend was a clone, that she was not the real person. You know, I I thought about how uh, this is a real counterfeit right here. You want to make sure that the relationship is real. In John's story, in John's gospel, we have this sort of famous story, perhaps you've heard it before, of Jesus speaking with this Samaritan woman. Jesus and his friends are in the southern part of Israel, not far from Jerusalem, in an area called Judea, and they're traveling north. They have to go through what today is called the West Bank, but at that time was called Samaria. Um, a former uh, Israeli uh, prime minister took to starting to call the West Bank Samaria again. I think in order to irritate the Palestinians who were living there. But Jesus and his friends are traveling from the southern part to the northern part, heading to Galilee. And, and in order to get there, you have to travel through that West Bank area, Samaria, um, to, in order unless you did what a lot of 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 conscientious religious Jews did is that they would head north, then head east, cross the Jordan River, and on the desert side, they would go north out of their way by many miles through the desert just to avoid walking through Samaria. The reason is that there were real tensions. You even caught it perhaps there in in the reading, real tensions between Jews and Samaritans. They had no dealings with one another. Twofold issue, really. Uh, one was theology; that they they had this theological difference. But the real the real rub was racial. There was a racial component to the Samaritans and and, and the Jews. The Samaritans were not were not thorough thoroughly Jewish. They were um, part Jewish, part Gentile. And it, it comes goes along long back in history. But but some of the Jews, many of the, the conscientious Jews, regarded them as less than. Um, less than authentic people they were they were um, they were not they were not worthy of their their time or their their relationship and and, and so Jesus goes through Samaria he goes through Samaria instead of going around it and you think to yourself well that 's exactly what he should do, but you know what it 's not that long ago, and maybe you even know somebody today who still thinks that you know, that racism is okay. Not long ago in this country, many of you maybe even can remember a time when people of African descent could not sit in the same seats or eat in the same restaurants or drink out of the same water fountains. I mean, racism is is a deeply ingrained part of tribalism. And is as present today as it ever has been, Jesus walks through Samaria, and he really breaks stride with serious social custom. Maybe some of you remember, not even not long ago, 1994, I think it was, that apartheid was the the government policy in South Africa. A, A standing government policy that separated blacks and whites. Jews and Samaritans, the woman says, have no dealings with one another. And Jesus walks right through Samaria. And it's about noon. He's hot, he's tired, he's thirsty, and he stops by a well, but apparently has nothing with which to get water. It's a really, really deep well, over a hundred feet deep to get the water. And so he's sitting there by the well. The friends go off to buy food. I don't know where they're going, a pizza shop or somewhere. And so they're heading off to, to find something to eat. He's left alone, and and a woman arrives. And he begins to talk to her. Notice that she doesn't engage him in conversation. He engages her in conversation. I couldn't help but to think how John 4 is such a contrast to John 3. I think the author obviously does this on on purpose. Do you remember John 3? There was a man, his name was Nicodemus. He was a Pharisee. He was a a leader of the Jews. He was was a well-respected, probably well-educated, probably wealthy man. And he comes to Jesus by night in order seeking a private audience. Here we have a woman who has no name. She's unnamed, a woman of Samaria. She is ethnically um, uh, the other, separated. She is religiously defiled. Jews have no dealings with Samaritans because it would defile them. And Jesus engages her. He wants a private audience with her. What a contrast that John sets out for us. But you have to see, not only is this polar opposite, but this is a big deal that Jesus speaks with a woman, a Samaritan woman. A rabbi in the first century would not speak to his own wife in public. I'm not kidding. Were, and certainly never to a stranger. I have these, uh, these quotes from rabbis in this area that say, you know, speaking to them brings upon great evil upon yourself. Speaking to a strange woman would bring great evil upon yourself, ultimately send you to hell. This is the culture. Racism, sexism. And Jesus cuts right through. In the first century. 2,000 years ago. And he speaks to this woman. He engages her in conversation. She is shocked. His friends are shocked. They are scandalized by this. The discussion takes twists and turns, and everybody wants to get into the husband deal. I don't want to. Just because I don't think that's really the big point of the story. The point of the story really gets into the point about Worship. She wants to say, you know, hey, Samaritans worship Mount Gerizim, a mountain they could see from where they were standing. And you Jews, you Zionists, you want to be in Jerusalem. Where's the right place to worship? What's the right geography? And here's the payoff. Verse 23, listen to this. Jesus says to her, the hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father seeks such people To worship him. This is a question about authentic worshipers. What's an authentic worshiper? Someone who worships God in spirit and in truth. God is spirit, cannot be grasped, cannot be held onto, cannot be cornered, can't even be fit into a box. (laughs) Squeeze that in there. That God cannot be controlled. God is spirit. And he expects us to worship in spirit. Which means not with stuff. (laughs) What does the psalmist say over and over again? The sacrifices of God are what? A broken and contrite spirit. A broken heart he will not despise. But God wants authentic relationship. Love. Affection. Adoration. Adoration. These are spiritual ways of worship, aren't they? And truth, honesty, candor, openness. The woman runs off and says, let me tell you about somebody who told me everything I've ever done. It's a recognition that God knows us in and out, through and through. This is what the Collect for Purity begins. Every, every Anglican Mass begins this way, right? Almighty God, to whom all hearts are open, all desires known, and from whom no secrets are hid, do what? Cleanse the thoughts of our hearts. Not the instrument that pumps blood through us, right? But our emotions, our desire, our affection. Why? So that we might perfectly love you. True love comes from, from this openness and honesty in this spiritual worship. And so, what it worship is not. If we know what authentic worship is, spirit and truth, what is it not? Well... I know it's hard to believe, but it's not getting every point of doctrine correct. Some of us live in this idea of doctrinal purity, that we know what orthodoxy is. Yeah, I I know what heresy looks like, too. Okay, I'm not saying that. But I'm saying that sometimes we have to hold our ideas a little loosely. Just because we think something is true doesn't mean it is. It just means that we think it is. And there's a big difference between what is true and what we think is true. A little humility. A little recognition that just because I think it doesn't mean that it's right. I could, I know, perish the thought, be wrong. And authentic worship isn't about geography. It's not about Jerusalem or Gerasim. It's not about Rome or Canterbury. It's about having an authentic relationship with God. Authentic relationship. Genuine love. I, I tried to think about ways in which and we can take good things, religious things, and we can turn them into the wrong thing. And one of those that came to my mind was Holy Communion. Holy communion is central. It's central to the way that Anglicans worship. It's central to the way that Christians have worshipped for two thousand years. But at its most basic level, communion is a meal. It's bread and it's wine. It's it's a meal. It's not unlike the meal that a loving spouse would make for his or her partner. An act of love. It's not the meal that's important. It's, it's the giving that's important, isn't it? It's not unlike a meal that, suppose you had a friend who calls you up and says, you know, you haven't seen him or her for, for 10 or 20 years, and they say, I'm going to be in town, and, and let's get together and have a meal and you say, yeah, come to my house and, and, and I'll break out great wine and, and I'll make you a, a, a good meal. It's not the meal. You need that. It's a vehicle. The meal is a vehicle to express and to commune with one another. This is what the meal that, that Jesus gives us. A channel through which we can have relationship. And if Holy Communion is turned into some dry, meaningless, robotic act, well, you might as well see your friend you hadn't seen for two decades go to a restaurant, sit down, and both of you look at your cell phones the whole time. I mean, that's not, that's not a real relationship. That's not a meal that, that, that communicates love. I, I thought about my experience with, um, with cologne <laughs> over the past year um, and, and how it taught me something I think that is really important, and it's this. But the genuine article smells really good, but it costs a lot. It's costly. Counterfeits, on the other hand, are cheap, but they stink. I think this is a lesson that goes beyond cologne. I think it's a good lesson for all of us to learn, especially lessons about Relationships.